I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Um, well, this is going to be really fun. We're uh, we're sitting down with Katie from Sooner, which is the uh, the substance user network of the Atlantic region. Uh, Katie, uh, I- I'm going to throw it to you for for a little introduction. Give our listeners a bit of insight into who you are, uh, the work that you do, and how you found yourself uh, in the position that you're you're in working with uh, Sooner. Sure. So I am Sooner's harm reduction educator. Um, And so Sooner, as you said, is the substance user network of the Atlantic region. And so um, we started through Direction 180, which is located in Halifax, Nova Scotia. So they provide opiate treatment. They applied for um, money through Health Canada's substance use and addictions program. Um, So we've been funded since August of 2020. And I feel like I should say right now that my opinions do not necessarily reflect those of Health Canada. Disclaimer in there. Yeah, we're um, gonna get some hot takes. Brian loves a good hot take. I he love does. hot takes. He does. <laughs> yeah. So um, we're a network of approximately forty members, um, and we all have live, lived or living experience uh, of substance use. And so our members live in eight different communities across the four Atlantic provinces. So here in Nova Scotia. We have members in Truro, Sydney, and Halifax. Um, in New Brunswick, we have members in St. John, Fredericton, and Moncton. We also have members in Charlottetown, PEI, and St. John's, Newfoundland. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. So we have help of harm, our key partners, so other harm reduction organizations throughout Atlantic Canada. So in each of those eight locations that I mentioned, um, we have support from those organizations, um, so they, they support our members and some of them in participating in our meetings. Um, so we engage with our members over Zoom since we're Atlantic wide um, twice a month and we participate in knowledge exchange, skills-based workshops and other capacity enhancing activities. Um, so, and on top of our Zoom meetings, we actually recently got a little more extra funding in January. And so with the extra money, um, we've just started a webinar series, which is really exciting. Um, check out our website at sooner.ca um, our, and our um, other social media. And um, so we also have a monthly newsletter as well. So you can subscribe to that. So the newsletter is a collection of substance use and harm reduction resources that that we collect every month. Um, 
we try to have it like Atlantic Canada based, but, you know, I also include research um, that's Canada wide as well um, to keep people up to date. And we have a little member section near the bottom so you can learn a little bit more, more about each uh, of our members. Mm -hmm. And yeah, we also have in-person events and mm. um, we have many allies with like-minded organizations like the National Safer Supply Community of Practice. Um, we co-hosted with them in um, on an event just in June. And so that was in person geared towards health and service providers to learn more about opening doors to care for people who use drugs and safer mm. supply. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, so this all came together uh, because uh, folks may remember recently we did an episode with Mom Stop the Harm. Um, and uh, they are a network of Canadian families impacted by substance use related harms and deaths. And Emily from Mom Stop the Harm actually put us in touch uh, with you, Katie. And, uh, and, you know, she was telling us about Sunar. And of course, this is a, a, a topic that is, uh, has, has kind of come up on Sick Boy a number of times over the last seven years, but in particular, a lot over the last couple of years. Um, and it's something that we, we feel is really important to like spread mm -hmm. awareness about and, and kind of dive into the the subject matter. Um, uh, we we also just recently did an episode with the the minister of, of addictions and mental health, and you know, kind of going down this road to talk about an issue that has become uh, apparent that is that is that it is affecting uh, a lot of people across our country and, and North America or the world really in general, um, and. And so to be able to have the opportunity to speak to you about the work that you do with Sunar is, is you know, it's huge for us. And we mm -hmm. thank you for, for taking time to, to uh, dive into this conversation with us. I guess the, the first thing I'd love to like kind of pick your brain about um, for people who maybe like aren't really in the know or, or you know, don't really think about this kind of stuff. Um, because out of sight, out of mind, a lot of folks don't really want to think about substance, uh, substance, you know, the stigmas related with substance use. What what are what are some of the stigmas that we see today when it comes to substance use and and people who are who you know rely on things like safe supply and, and stuff like that? Yeah, I think there's so many. Um, they're so widespread. Um, you know, stigma that like it's a choice <laughs> and that we're just lazy and unmotivated and that we're bad people. Like there's moral, these moral connotations mm. to using substances. And that's a direct result of our drug policies. Right. And if I could speak for a minute about um, like alcohol, for example, is legal. We all know that, but the harms of alcohol like the actual substance itself alcohol like the molecule when you take it into your body are much worse than some of our illegal drugs currently mm. what makes illegal drugs so harmful is the policies around them so when you have to use an isolation you're risking um you know a drug poisoning and you know maybe you're sharing um syringes because you you know, again, you have to hide your use and you, you know, some people don't feel comfortable going to a pharmacy to buying them if mm. they don't have access locally. And so um, I, I don't think that people think about that, though, like we, we see even updated um, guidelines around drinking that just came out and like drinking is really harmful, but we have that choice to put it in our bodies without judgment. We can just buy it. Um, and I just think, um, yeah, that the main... 
stigma really comes from our drug policies mm -hmm. and um, we're just, we're designated as criminals because, you know, you may choose to binge watch Netflix and, and that's how, how, you know, you relax at the end of the day. And, you know, maybe I have more on the go. I have more um, mental health stuff that I'm struggling with. And I choose to use a substance that the government has made illegal. Mm. I there's there was a quote that I heard recently um, from a doctor speaking about this that that said there's no such thing as good drugs and bad drugs there are just good and bad relationships with drugs and so when I hear you talk mm. about um, the sort of policies around um, some of these substances that force people to use in isolation um, one of the sort of like counter arguments that I think people would have to that point is that like you can go to din to dinner and like drink one glass of wine and not be drunk, but enjoy the substance and then, you know, go home and, and live your life without that really affecting you. Is it possible to use, you know, opioids or like things like this in a way that is like, you know, recreational or you could just enjoy the substance and then not become like uh, addicted to it? Or is it like, can you explain what you really mean by that? Because I I don't think that that's what you're saying necessarily. Um, but to, to, I'm sure that there are people listening who are like, well, I don't think there's any way for us to have healthy relationships with things like opioids. I mean, I really think that that's a myth. I, I really think that that's another one of the stigmas out there. Um, I think it's such a small proportion of people that, you know, have developed a, a serious problem um, than what we realize. We only hear about the severe um, substance use, but yeah, I know people that use recreationally. For myself, like I, so I, uh, um, I'm in recovery from intravenous opioid use and I can use other substances recreationally. That's not a problem. I'm very happy to, <laughs> like, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I admit that. And um, I'm glad I'm away from like some of those abstinence-based programs because I would feel really guilty all the time about mm. like my other substance use. Um, but I, I really feel it's a myth. Like, you know, um, shopping is addictive gambling is addictive like you know what I mean it's it's about your environment too and you know um what's happening for you inside whether uh, a behavior or a substance becomes a problem for you um and you know, getting back to a little bit about our drug policies, like we've been using drugs for thousands of years. It's just in the last over a century that, you know, certain ones have been illegal. And if we could have still um, had been using like cocoa leaves and opium, you know, um, like we used to, it's really our drug laws that's created these really strong drugs because you want to traffic in smaller uh, amounts, of course, of stronger mm. drugs, right? So the iron law of prohibition suggests that those drug laws make our drugs really toxic. So, but if we had just been able to smoke opium like we used to, you know, we wouldn't have uh, fentanyl and I don't think, you know, it'd be as harmful. Mm. Yeah, there's definitely a, the drug policies. Yeah, I think you can definitely make the argument that the drug policies, especially for those who do end up developing a really, uh, a really negative uh, relationship with, with, a, with a drug that, you know, that that affects their lives in really deep and, and harmful ways. You could I think you could definitely make the argument that the policies that we have in place help drive that negative outcome in a big in a big way. Mm -hmm. And I'm reminded of 
this guy named, I, I haven't talked about this guy on, on the podcast in a while. Fuck, I want to have him on the podcast so bad. His name's David, uh, David Nutt. He's a psychopharmacologist from the UK. And he, uh, so he was the guy who did the, did the um, antidepressant versus psilocybin study. Mm-hmm. Um, Which and, we covered on Feel Good Friday. Yeah. And he, he, ha- he was basically hired by the UK, uh, by the UK government to review their drug policies and basically go like, hey, where they they asked the question, and which he thought sounded really rational for them to have asked him the question. This kind of foremost thinker and um, researcher on this topic, like, what, where, where, do, where are drug policies falling short? And he was basically like, hey, in every single way, they're falling short because they don't speak to the actual nature of any of these drugs, and they're all classified in the the most the strangest ways, and they're basically just classified according to stigma, not necessarily according to scientific research. Mm-hmm. And then they basically said, well, that's not what we wanted to hear. So they fired him. And, uh, <laughs> but, but basically he, he has come up with his own like ranking criteria for drugs based on their, the, the potential harm caused to in two, in two big columns, their potential harm to the user and their potential harm to um, society. So like, what is the harm to society when somebody uses this drug and what is the harm that <laughs> can be inflicted on a person that uses that drug? And, and then when you look, if you look at how that classification ranks when you use his criteria versus like drug policies for governments, I mean, it's like one of those things in school where you had to like draw the lines from one column to the other. Mm, and they're, match, like, and they're yeah. all crisscrossing, like the one in the top column on one side yeah. is actually connected like to the one on the bottom Red and green column. is like <laughs> strawberry down here. And it's like, it's like these lists are completely different from each other because, mm-hmm. and alcohol is at the top of the list in, from his criteria. It's, it's like the most dangerous to the user and it causes the most societal harm and which is com- in complete contrast to our, our policies uh, from a social and governmental level where this is like the most, the least stigmatized mm. substance um, and the most available to, to obtain. But it sounds like Katie, what, what you were saying too, is that um, there's almost another column there where the current policies actually force those drugs to have this um, greater negative societal impact because they're forcing people to, you know, steal or rob people to have to get access to a safe supply or like or or not safe supply but to access to the drug itself and all the things like this can you can you speak to like what like how those um the laws and policies around this sort of force people into like these having this negative societal outcome um for drugs like opioids and things like that yeah, and I, as as you're speaking, I wanted to mention too. Um, we have to think about who stands to gain from these policies as well, right? And it's the people in power can continue to keep the power, and then the money. You know what I mean? And um, sorry, I'm getting away from your question, but I think it's really important to note that the our drug policies target people in poverty. They target people who use drugs. They target indigenous peoples and people of color. You know, we really need to like shift the power in our society, that power dynamic. Um, and yeah, but how, uh, how our drug policies, yeah, it, it pushes people onto the fringes of society, right? And I think with harm reduction, what we're trying to do is like bring them back in with love and acceptance and we'll take you as you are. And um, yeah, when, you know, you 
considering that I used opioids, I know that you need those on a daily basis to function and you make decisions, um, you know, out of desperation. And if we just had more access to, you know, if I could go to a store and buy what I needed, you know, I wouldn't have done some of the things that hurt me as well as other people that I do regret. Um, and yeah, it, it gives you very limited options. Like for me, what I did, because I didn't want to hurt other people is I went to doctors and I, you know, I um, complained about having chronic pain and um, got access to a prescription. And at one point, actually through seeking help, I went to detox. I, you know, I was injecting this medication. I wasn't supposed to, I know that. Um, but that's just it. People also think if we give this safer supply, people will never want to change their relationship with drugs. Mm -hmm. Well, I did. I wanted mm -hmm. support. Like I wasn't happy. And some people may never want to change their relationship. And, but I was productive when I, you know, I was more productive when I had that, you know, legal prescription and, and I was healthier because I could spend my money on food and mm. shelter, yeah. <laughs> you know, um, that kind of thing. Right. So, um, then I, I went to detox and the detox doctor called my family doctor who I'd had since I was born, by the way. And, um, I was immediately discharged from his, his care. I, I got like a scathing letter and, um, you know, if I hadn't been able to sit down with my doctor and have a conversation, like, I wish we could have conversations about substance use health. Yeah. Hey doc, this is where I'm at. Um, I don't want to be injecting this anymore. Like it's, I'm not happy doing that anymore. Um, you know, what can we do about that in, in a way that I'm comfortable and they're comfortable? Mm. So I don't know if that answered your question. Mm -hmm. But to your point there, like, you know, about the, the notion that, you know, if we, if we allow for folks to have access to these things, they're never really going to change their tune. Um, even in speaking to Emily, you know, this, this long and quite beautiful story about her son who was addicted to, um, uh, a variety of, of different substances. And, you know, in, in that story of, of Emily essentially being like, uh, you know, playing a part in being the one to supply her son, uh, with, with this, with the, you know, the, these medications that he like, so desperately needed in, in those moments, um, it, it, it allowed him to come to a place where he could make that change and, and, you know, got to a place where, you know, it sounds similar to your story, Katie, where he was like, okay, like I've, I've had this, uh, available to me now. I'm, I'm ready to move forward and, and not use anymore. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if he didn't have that, that element of it coming from his mother and the care that she supported him with, then you know maybe he would find himself in a different situation. When I when I hear you talking about that uh, conversation <laughs> with your your doctor and like wanting to be able to have that open line of communication where you're talking them to them about like where you're at really and and what you actually need, um and and you know people not being willing to have that conversation. It reminds me of the like COVID situation in China. Like they're trying to have zero cases of COVID when. Mm -hmm in reality, that's not going to happen. And, and we're, it, it feels like it's we, like prohibition, yeah. we're sort of living with the idea that nobody's ever going to use drugs. And like, if you do, then whatever, we're fucking giving up on you. And if we changed our sort of mindset to be like, Hey, this will happen. People will, 
will use these things. You know, let's provide them with as much love and support as we can. And that is probably the better approach Ooh. to like helping people get back on track who want to get on track. Like, and I think that, that seems like a way better idea to me. And I think the craziest, the craziest part is that if you even just, if, if we even just said like, if, if we even just said, Hey, you, you might not even need to change your tune on, on wanting no one to be doing drugs, but the current way that you're trying to get to that place is ludicrous. Yeah. Mm. So like, even if you kept that same goal, you would st you still need to radically change your position mm. on how you are going to get there because mm. it's not working in its current setup yeah. in any way, shape, or form. If not, if it's not making it way worse, it's causing way harm, way more harm. Yeah. <laughs> Are vegans actually unhealthy? Does cannabis ruin your sleep? And why are so many men taking testosterone supplements? I'm Mitch. And I'm Greg. And we're the creators of the popular YouTube channel, ASAP Science. Every week on our podcast, Side Note by ASAP Science, we explain the science behind a controversial subject with recent research, up-to-date studies, and ridiculous stories so you are entertained while, bam, simultaneously learning. We're here to make science make sense. Download Side Note by ASAP Science wherever you got your podcasts then let's talk about the the current model and what we're looking at right now so i know that there's like a medical model for safer supply and i know that through these types of conversations we've come to realize that like it it doesn't seem to be working um for people who aren't aware what is the medical model model for safer supply and why is it not seeming to to work why is this not the model that we should be looking at right now yeah, so a um, medical model is prescribing people who use drugs a substance as close to the drug they're using on the street as possible. So, for example, for methamphetamines, we don't really have a pharmaceutical alternative right now that I'm aware of that can be prescribed. So, like for stimulants, there's a lot less options. We can prescribe fentanyl, we can prescribe heroin now. Um, so, it's having that prescribed um, medication by a doctor and with fully aware that, um, you know, you're taking it, um, for reasons other than what we would normally think of, <laughs> you know, um, not necessarily for pain. Um, mm -hmm. and it's to stop these deaths. Right. Um, so the idea is of course, you know, the strength, like when you pick up a prescription, you know, the strength and it's regulated. And so you don't have to worry about adulterants in it. And so it's safer. Um, and, uh, the medical model, I guess, as soon as you medicalize substance use, um, you know, less people are willing to engage in it. I know that there's IOT program, so that's injectable opiate <laughs> agonist therapy. So a lot are like with hydromorphone um, or Dilaudid. Um, and, you know, they're really, then we institutionalize people almost. You, you have to go to this clinic three times a day to inject in front of someone. And it's very paternalistic and it's very controlling. And again, it keeps the money in the pockets of the people in power. And, um, you know, it's, I don't know, it's just seems really controlling. And I, yeah, I wish that we could look at other models like compassion club models. I think Emily had spoken to that, but, um, you know, 
the stigma, getting back to the stigma really quickly, I wanted to say, like, if our government uses that word a lot and we want to reduce stigma, but if our government really cared about this, the stigma, they would change the policies mm. and invest in people who use drugs and like divest in police. And mm. so it's just, it can be really frustrating, I think. And especially when, you know, we have this solution, we just need unadulterated safe drugs for people to use. Mm. And they're going to use anyway and there's benefits to using too we didn't really i didn't really touch on that but like you know there's also benefits to using um drugs or else people wouldn't use them um so yeah i don't know if that answered your question yeah can, 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 you, like, can you speak to some of those yeah. benefits because that's i think that's a that's a really rat like that's a radical idea for a lot of people definitely someone heard that right now and, yep. and their ears perked up yeah. and they went what the fuck yeah and that butts up that that even that that butts up against what i have what i have built into into my mind yeah. i mean given what we do i'm 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 just i'm it's built in also to be open to mm. listen to somebody explain <laughs> how, how how that could be wrong for sure um like for example, I know a lot of long haul truckers use stimulants to stay awake. We have unrealistic expectations that they should drive all these this distance, you know, and and they use stimulants to stay awake. Um, you know, uh, people think that you start using drugs and then you become on house. A lot of people are unhoused and then they start using stimulants to stay awake to gut you know guard their belongings or you know just to how do you walk around all day with nowhere to live like mm. you need stimulants to do that um and you know euphoria like people use it to cope with mental health um i know for me like that's that's why i started using it, and it was very beneficial for a while for me and yeah um, i mean emily emily's son that, that was one of the things that kind of came out in, in the conversation with Emily is that, you know, her son had OCD and like really intense ADHD his whole life. And, you know, when he, when he found stimulants, it was the first time where he was like, holy shit, I, you know, I, I feel like I now have control over my mental health issues, which, you know, I mean, sure, there's some people out there that would hear that and go, well, that's an unhealthy control, but it is, it's a control nonetheless. And so, you know, for him, it was something that was actually benefiting him at that time. Do you, do you think like, as I, as I hear you say those examples, I, 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 I wonder, I wonder, I, I hear those and go, are these not, are these not reasons that are, that exist? Like the current environment that we live in, like those exist, like you said, truckers driving huge distances. How do you expect somebody to drive huge, just huge, gigantic distances and, and huge periods of time without having something that, that physically allows them to do that? Um, does it and people and people who don't have a home having to guard their belongings like does it it, it kind of speaks to like an underlying it kind of speaks to like underlying issues that we have like fundamentally in society that that sort of that push people to need something rather than um you know like we talked this it, it reminds me a lot of the maid conversation that, that we've thinking been having. That too. um so if you're not familiar um with that um is katie is the the um, medical assistance and dying regulations have been like expanded over the last several years and are now starting to basically include people that are giving a made giving access to made to people who 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 need social supports like they mm -hmm. like it's really a failure in the system that they feel like their life needs to be over 
And instead of giving, instead of doubling down on the social efforts to give them the support and programs that they need to be. Anyway, so it's, it sounds sort of like this, like there's this underlying issue with a lot of the things that we do that make that, that drive uh, mm-hmm. or create the benefits of well, using well, I'd say made is, is probably a really compelling example to, to Katie's point that like, if you're going to allow somebody to have the option to end their own life, but you won't give them a, a legal safe access to unadulterated, you know, dr- drug use to at least help them feel better as a person first, but you'll give them the option to legally end their life. Then that's, you know, to me, that's a pretty compelling argument to be able like, how are you supposed to allow somebody the opportunity to work towards feeling better if you can't even give them like a, an immediate sort of relief from the suffering that they mm. experience in, you know, living as a houseless person or, or, you know, like you said, trying to protect or guard your, your only possessions that you might have. And can I, I wanted to speak to those like structural problems that you're talking about. Yeah. It's, it's a failure in our system So when I think about my own experience, like I had a suicide attempt, a really serious suicide attempt. And that's when I started injecting full time, like I switched to injecting opioids. And I felt it saved my life because I tried to access supports for trauma and for like the serious stuff that was going on. And like it wasn't available or it was super hard to access or it cost a bunch of money. So how can we expect if we don't have those supports readily available for people, how can we say this is an unhealthy way to cope if this makes life more livable and easier to face for you? you know, like how how can we say, oh no, that's not okay, but we don't have the services we need to be, you know, more productive and a happier included member of our society, and then we judge that use, like, mm. you know, and even if you're not using from trauma, or like, I just think people should have agency over their own lives, and we should be able to celebrate, party, however we see fit, right? Mm-hmm. You know. Bars are supervised consumption sites for alcohol. <laughs> you know they're not medicalized, yeah. right? Yeah, there's just a gigantic I, I, and and it really, I think you, you we kind of need to just continuously go back to alcohol because yeah. it is it's a great example. It is the example of yeah. how we have taken something mm-hmm. that yeah. that that can be used in a super responsible way and can be obviously abused in a really yeah. really but, harmful way. But we've we have established a way in which we supervise that consumption in certain mm-hmm. ways and, and regulate it and give people the the knowledge of what you are consuming and what the strength of that consumption is like that was a gigantic a gigantic advantage when we legalized uh, cannabis mm-hmm. was all of a sudden going I know I have some information about what this is mm-hmm. I know what the percentages of THC and CBD and all that stuff, like that is a that that's a that 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 proved to be a major um, kind of like turning point in the consumption of and, that of that substance. And to that point too, like I mean, obviously there are going to be people who still have uh, negative relationships with sure. alcohol, and and you can build systems to support those people, like twelve step mm. programs and things like that. But I wanted to um, come back to your point, Katie, about like your experience and your story, and it makes me wonder, like sitting here speaking to you. And like, you're now a homeowner. You're, you're talking to us from what I assume is your house right now. Um, and I'm, I'm curious, like, is there work being done to sort of like reverse engineer or understand the, the experiences of people who have been there 
and have experienced those like really dark and challenging times and have gotten to a place where like I presume you are now and and try to understand like how you got to where you are and and break that down and then like help apply that and I assume like also assuming that not everybody's experience is going to map directly to somebody else's but what can we like learn from your experience and how did you go from being in such a a dark place to you know being on the road to recovery yeah um harm reduction absolutely um like i almost died trying to be abstinent like <laughs> i really did i i not i don't for people that those programs work for those 12 step programs like all the power to you and i learned some excellent tools but you know they really suggested if i went on methadone or suboxone God forbid, safer supply, like, you know, then, then that was a failure that I, you know, that, that wasn't okay. Um, like they just perpetuated that stigma. So it, it took me a long time before I accessed, um, you know, methadone and suboxone because of that. Um, you know, and I'm a perfectionist. <laughs> I really am like, you know, that's kind of what <clears throat> took me down. I was in my master's at, at Dow. I was doing a, a master's in developmental economics and I was just doing way too much working like as a research assistant, all these things um, and didn't recognize the childhood trauma that was kind of under the surface. And uh, yeah, that's what really, um, and I, you know what? I had used opiates before then um, on other occasions. And it was, I was never, I was never like, oh, I need this for the rest of my life. This is amazing feeling. It was the environment that I was in and how much I had taken on and didn't recognize. But really for me, it was methadone um, and, and people just supporting me and caring about me no matter what. Like I remember mm. being in a grocery store, um, no money, like really struggling. And I saw someone I recognized and asked for money and they without and they knew that I was going to buy drugs with it without question they handed me $20 and people think that that's enabling but I have never forgotten that and that told me like I I value you I care about you I don't want you to have to do things that you regret to feel well to to function and you know um I love you that's that's what that said to me, <laughs> you know, and and people like I, I feel I've been really blessed that that people like drove me to appointments and and, uh, you know, helped me get there. I also had really negative experiences with the with methadone, just with how like controlling carries and and, you know, daily dispense dosing was it made it really hard to have a job, but get to a pharmacy and go mm. to drug urine screenings and um yeah and I feel that that's why it's so important that when people make policies around substance use they have to engage with people that it, it, those policies are impacted by mm. but I wanted really quickly if I could use the like what we found with COVID is people were now given methadone to take home whereas before they had to take it every day in the pharmacy if they didn't meet like mm. very strict criteria and there's research out now and giving people carries the increases of overdoses did it didn't it didn't go up like they thought there was decrease in overdoses mm. and retention rates in methadone programs 
was astronomically higher and hospitalization rates were lower. Like it was saving mm. us money. And we've been saying for years, people who use drugs have been saying like, give us this medication to take home. Like, you know, treat us like adults. And um, COVID-19, you know, they finally did. And now there's evidence to show like, we can handle this medication on our own. <laughs> what, what are what are some of the current harm reduction policies and programs at play right now that we see currently in Canada? Um, well, actually, I'm a volunteer of NORS, the National Overdose uh, Response Service. I think they're really great. So I think they recognize, um, at least right now, there's not um, an overdose prevention site in, everywhere. Um, so it's sort of overdose prevention over the phone. So people call before they use a substance and I chat with them while they're getting it ready and um, you know, find out what their plan is if they were to experience a drug poisoning. So it might be for me to uh, get their address and call um, you know, EMS, but some people have a family or friend nearby, like they don't mm. wanna deal with police or EMS. Yeah. So um, find out what their plan is and uh, it's Canada wide. So, and then anybody can call, they let me know like what they're using or at least what they think they're using. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, and it's, it's confidential and anonymous uh, other than, like I said, I sort of need your address in case there's mm. an adverse event, but we don't, you know, report that. So, um, and it's just really non-judgmental. Like when people call, I'm not like, what are you doing, man? Like change your life. No, yeah. it's like, <laughs> <laughs> what are you, what, like how are you doing today like you treat them like real real people and um you know and and people are so grateful too when you just give them treat them like a, a real human being with love and empathy and understanding like this this guilt and shame does not change people we can't force people to change mm. <laughs> so yeah so there's north um Do you, you know with the with that, when when people call in, do you um do you do you sit with them on the phone like while they're using, or are they just sort of like give okay and, and and like how long would you typically be on like one of those calls for? Um, it depends. Twenty minutes, a half hour. Like some people just really need to talk to afterwards, and mm -hmm. so we provide that. But you know, we are primarily yeah like a over the phone, like virtual spotting, I guess, a safe consumption. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, I like people to stay on with me a little while after they've used a course to make sure, you know, it can take a little bit before that substance, depending on the route of administration too, like that substance really kicks in and could yeah. have adverse effects. So, yeah. I know, I know you can't speak to any specific experiences, but have you had um, cases where like things have gone um, awry or, or like, like, yeah, in a way that they you didn't suspect they didn't suspect um i haven't had any um experiences where like help needed to be called i've had experiences where people were really ramped up on stimulants and feeling really um anxious and paranoid like they're heart racing and so it feels like an emergency to them and you know if, if we can not involve police or ems like we'd like to because it we know it does further harm so i just like sort of talk them down and hey have you had anything to eat today like you know, maybe try this, like have a glass of water, like distract them sort of from how they're feeling and, and, and that kind of thing. But I know that they have had to call for, for help or had naloxone administered through um, NORS and they haven't had um, any fatalities because NORS, NORS is there. I can't give you the exact numbers mm -hmm. like on how many <laughs> adverse events they responded to mm -hmm. though. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, for That's folks right. curious, NORS uh, in Canada only, it's one eight 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 six eight eight 688 nors which is 6677. But if you're listening in the US, 
and you're curious, there's a never use alone, which the U.S. number is 1-800-484-3731. Never use a bank loan? Um, <laughs> never get a loan. <laughs> um, I, uh, I'm curious about um, the, you know, the notion of like legal regulation of all substances. And I know that this is something that we sort of talked to uh, Carolyn Bennett a little, little bit about. But from your perspective, as someone who works um, in in harm reduction education the way that you do, um, do you like what is your what is your take on the future of legal regulation of all substance substances substances in Canada? Um, like, is that something that you see becoming a reality in the next you know five or ten years? Like, like is there a light at the end of the tunnel here? Um, do you feel like the conversations are moving in a direction where like we could potentially see something like that? I, I mean, I would love to see it. I don't know. That's a great question. I do not advocate that there should be, you know, fentanyl in corner stores. Like that's, that's not how I feel. There's different ways to legally regulate drugs. And I think it should be strict legal regulation. Um, you know, there's like a spectrum of uh, I, I'm thinking of like this bell curve now in my head. I wish I had the infographic, but you know, I see it as, as being very strict legal regulation. I, I don't know if we're going there or not. I would, I would hope, mm. but I really feel that decriminalization is kind of this incrementalism that, that is not appropriate given the lives that are being lost. You know, mm. we saw how quick we responded to COVID and, you know, this is, um, a systemic problem, you know, of the same sort of magnitude, and it's not getting, you know, an appropriate response. So honestly, I'm not sure how that would look. Um, <laughs> where where does the res- resistance to this idea come from? Like the like this this like hearing you refer to it as like strict legalization. I mean, if the data shows that oh, we should have somebody that, on the show that 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 kind of really thinks i mean i think we're all i think we're i think i would say that we're generally on the same page here we should talk to somebody who is really not it's katie from your experience like have you heard like the sort of arguments to the opposite side of that like like what people who are resistant to this are saying uh yeah like i think it's just we're so indoctrinated by society too like this has been years and years decades of media and and police reports and like it just really drugs are bad and they destroy your lives and this and that but um i think people think that you know kids will be harmed and everybody will just become um again like it's just all stigma like this idea of a, a person you know um just can't control themselves on the street um you know stealing and, and hurting everyone and um yeah but People want to keep the status quo. I really feel as though it just comes down to think about how much money and infrastructure we now have in keeping drugs illegal. Mm. You know, like it keeps police in a job, lawyers in a job, um, judges, like it's a lot. Right. Mm. And, and um, yeah, I can't off the top of my head think of like the arguments that I've, that I've heard um, because yeah, maybe I talk to too many like-minded people. <laughs> well, I mean, but you bring up a, I mean, you bring up a few good points there, but like that idea of like that person thinking of the kid on the street that's like robbing and stealing and stuff. But like the funny thing is, the reason why they're doing that is, is because, because they're. Illegal. <laughs> illegal. I think a lot of people think that. I think a lot of people think 
especially if you have never had an experience with being, uh, you know, reliant on, on, on something heavily or never had any experience with drug use that I think it can be very easy to naively think that if you just don't pay attention to it or you don't, uh, I think, I think people see it as enabling and that if you enable, then you, then you perpetuate. And if you perpetuate, then you end up with more of these problems that are already there. Mm-hmm. And I would say that that's probably pretty central to how opponents to, um, you know, uh, safe supply, like regulated substances, like re- re- regulating in a, in a way, in, in whatever way that, that, that might take shape is, is, is just, um, perpetuating what already is mm-hmm. instead of, and I don't think they, I think they don't necessarily see the, the side of like, but this could be a way that makes things better that mm-hmm. starts to help push things in a way that is harm reducing for people that are using drugs and saving people's lives who might otherwise die. Yeah, it's it's almost important to say like intuitively this might not feel like the right thing to do. Totally. Like, like I when we heard that story these, from Emily, we were yeah. all th- sitting there thinking, how many people are sitting here listening to this story going, I can't believe you did that. Yeah. That's their like yeah. initial until they get until you but get I mean, through to the end of the story. And, and that's me. Like when I when I hear these com- these types of things, and we've been talking about harm reduction for a long time now, and every time I hear us t- talk about it there's like a feeling deep inside me that's like, Oh, but, but I'm worried about like, are we enabling, are we allowing people to to do this thing that's going to hurt them? And it's just like this deep feeling, but that comes from like my indoctrination through media and through these things through that I've like heard elementary school forever uh, education in terms of like, you know, drugs are bad. And like, that's mm. been, that's but, been drilled. And so intuitively you, you think like, oh, well, we don't want that person to do that thing. Therefore, let's make it illegal for them to do it. And therefore they won't do it and everything will yeah, be okay. Right. But like then when you start to dig into it, That's you start to pull the thread a little bit, that entire idea unravels and you're like, oh, fuck, we're actually doing more harm than good this way. And we're actually not helping these people that. I mean, just go back to the 20s. need help. It's like prohibition. It's like we already, we came to that conclusion with alcohol a hundred years ago. Mm-hmm. Like we, we saw that and we went, let's stop that. Yeah. We look you back know? on it and we go, how silly was it to do that? So, so, so silly. So silly. Mm. Um, Katie, I have a question for you um, that I'm, I'm, I don't have any, um, I don't have any uh, like presuppositions about um, what I, like want you to say or, or, or how I want it to be answered or anything. I'm genuinely curious. Um, uh, that, that's something that's popped up in my head over the last several minutes about, uh, an experience or an interaction I had the other day. There, there's a, there's a, that has just kind of kept coming up as we've been having this conversation. So there's a, there's a, there's a guy in, in the neighborhood that I live in that everybody, uh, that everybody in the neighborhood knows he's, he's, he's out he's out and about. He's not, um, he's not, uh, homeless, but he has, he has some pretty severe mental health issues that, that preclude him from, you know, being able to hold a job and a bunch of, bunch of things. And he's, he is one of the nicest people ever. If you don't talk to him, he'll yell extremely obscene things at you. But as soon as you say hello, he's like, Oh, hello. What's up? And you have this like this beautiful conversation with this man. So, um, I'm walking down the street and I see him and I say, Hey, what's going on? And and he says, Hey, I, I just, I just really, 
uh, I want to ask you a favor. And I said, okay. And he said, I'm going to be on, I'm going to be totally honest with you. And I said, okay, yep, honesty. And he goes, oh, can you buy me some out? Can you buy me some alcohol? And I said, uh, I said, no, I'm not going to buy any alcohol, but I go, like, do you need to, do you need any food? Like what, what can I, what can I do for you? And he said, and, and then we just launched into a conversation where he basically gave me a whole grocery list, which was hilarious. And, uh, we had a conversation and I said, you just wait here. I'm going to go into the store right here and I'll come out and I'll get you some groceries. <clears throat> so anyway, I did that and I got him some groceries, but in this interaction, and as we're having this conversation, I'm, I'm thinking like, you know, when, you, when somebody, when, and, and, and I'm, and I'm not even, I'm, I'm just going to place into this story, the assumption that he might have a problem with alcohol, which I don't know if that's the case, but let's just assume that, that it is the case. Is that the appropriate thing to do? Is the appropriate thing to do from your perspective, like where you sit with all of your experience and the people that you speak with? Like, is it, is it appropriate to say, I, I you know, I'm not going to buy you alcohol or is it helpful in this whole realm and context of this conversation to go, you know, I, 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 I will buy you some alcohol. Um, because that, because maybe if I, if I don't do that, then maybe you are trying to, become intoxicated in some other way that is way less safe than the alcohol that could have been bought from the store. And, you know, I, I'm so, I'm just curious about like how, when I tell that story, like kind of what comes up in your mind? Yeah, I think you have to do what feels right for you. Um, but I think giving money, I, I think rather than like, oh, well, I'll, I'll buy you a sandwich or I'll, and, and just allow people to do with it what they please. Like that's very, to me, it's kind of paternalistic a little bit like, you know, um, well, on, but on the same hand, I do see like for some people that might not sit right. And so I also feel that you have to honor your own intuition and what feels right for you. Um, but yeah, like, when I encounter situations like that, I just give people money and I give them the agency to do with it as they see fit. I don't mm. know what their biggest needs are. Mm. Um, you know what I mean? And so that's, that's what I do. And like I said, somebody did that for me and it made, it meant so much to me. Yeah. <laughs> it really did on, on more than one occasion, people were there to help me out. And, and this idea of rock bottom, like we have to help people reach rock bottom. Like it's just, that's another one of those absent base missed I think like you know some people's quote-unquote rock bottom is death like we don't want that to happen mm. um so let's just like love and support people where they're at until they're ready to change and they may never be ready to change and that's okay too like mm. who are we to dictate how you should live and run your life I don't mm. know I don't think the government should dictate that either if we're not hurting anyone you know what yeah. I mean like yeah. we're using substances to me like we're not hurting anyone in terms of like giving somebody the, I mean, like if you really want to, to quote unquote, help someone and like give them, you know, say a parent is listening to this, whose, whose, um, kid is, uh, a substance user. Like if you really want to try to empower them to have the best chance to recover, is it through giving them that like love and support and agency rather than trying to like force them into recovery or like which one seems to have yield the better outcome i i think for, based on my own experience like loving and supporting people where they're at and giving them the information they need to make safer choices is most appropriate yeah. um yeah because i think especially when you're a teenager when you're a kid like 
I don't know about other kids, but like I did the opposite of what you told me to do. So if you say don't use drugs, I'm going to mm. use them harder and faster and better. <laughs> and you also close the lines of communication up, I think, between people. If you make it known that that's not okay, that's a bad thing, like then you feel that shame and and then you use an isolation and then, you know, all of those other harms that really are a function of our stigma mm. and drug policy, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, Katie, I, I, I want to say uh, thank you. Thank you for taking time out of your schedule to sit down with us and to uh, open up the conversation even further into uh, the importance of, you know, safe supply and, and the importance of like destigmatizing uh, uh, drug use. Um, it's something that I think is highly important. I really hope over the next few years we start to see a bit of change coming from the policymakers that uh, hold the power here because there's obviously something's got to change and and you know I'm hoping that we're moving that conversation in the right direction so mm-hmm. thank you for the work that you do and, and thanks for being a part of the show today this has been really great yeah and thank you so much for holding space for these conversations they're, they're really important so yeah thank you for the work that you you all are doing as well and have a great day yeah That is it for this week's edition of Routine Checkup. Thank you so much for tuning in, folks. It means the world to us. And if you'd like to continue listening to the podcast, you can do that right here on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. And of course, if you want to support the podcast further, you can leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, or you can simply rate the podcast on your Spotify mobile app. And uh, even Better than that, why don't you tell someone that you know, tell someone that you love, tell someone that you don't know, that you listen to Sick Boy Podcast and recommend it to them because we always love those extra ears. The podcast is produced and hosted by myself, Jeremy Saunders, Brian Stever, and Taylor McGilvery. The podcast is managed by Jeffrey Lonis at Talent Bureau. The theme music for today's episode comes from Rich O'Coin. Thanks again, folks. Hope you enjoyed it, and we'll be back next week. That's it for now. My name is Jeremy, and this is Sipboy. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.